All right. Um, first, before I start an apology, uh, Mark, as you've probably realized, is, is kind of a, an, it's an action film type of gospel or a, a graphic novel type of gospel. Mark is moving so fast. He, he goes from place to place and story to story. And uh, today we're going to do the same thing, but in fast forward. So um, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Um, also, before I start, I should thank my wife and kids for getting me here. When you have six kids, you hope that you're, you, you will get where you're going, but you're never sure. <laughs> and here, here we are, so uh, that's, that's a good thing. So as we start in Mark 3 and uh, verse 13, Jesus has become a phenomenon. He, uh, he has blown up. He is uh, being talked about all over uh, Galilee, um, word is spreading about him, people are gathering, and you've probably come across a, a cool leader um, who you've become fascinated by, uh, a thought leader, perhaps a sports figure, and you've, you've played the podcast, you've listened to the interviews, uh, the TED Talks, you find them compelling, um, amazing. Uh, so imagine you're, you're watching an event and it's someone like this who you find fascinating. Uh, maybe it's Tim Keller. Maybe it's N.T. Wright. Maybe it's Bill Self after last night, right? Um, yeah, so it's somebody that, that you care immensely about and you, you want to know what they think and what they're saying because someone like this is, is saying things no one has ever said before. They're doing things no one has ever done before. And that is what's happening here with Jesus. He's a sensation. For some in this crowd, and there are thousands, the excitement is enough. They're happy to, to be around Jesus, to be part of, of this excitement and energy. But let's say you are there, and for you, you want more. You want to reach his inner circle. You want to run into him. You want to go backstage. You want to hang out with Jesus. You want to know what he's really about and understand him. And as you listen to him speak, you realize he's saying this kind of thing is actually possible. He, he even encourages it. But the way he talks makes it obvious that not everyone will make this cut. Not everyone will get to be part of his inner circle. So who really gets to know Jesus, be, be his, his, his real fans, his disciples, the way he puts it, enter his kingdom? Uh, as we move through this, this long passage, we'll see that those who think they're in are out, and many of those who have always been out are in. So what does it take to get backstage with Jesus to become a disciple, to enter his kingdom? The answer is, is so simple and yet so frightening that most people will reject it. We'll see that the one thing you need is a thing that only Jesus can give you. So put yourself in the crowd and let's walk through it. Picking up in chapter 3, verse 13, uh, he picks his disciples and they're an unlikely group, say the least. Um, as you know, he's been surrounded by crowds. Remember crowds? Lots of people in, packed together in one place. Uh, he's been surrounded by crowds and they have all kinds of motives. Some are like, can you believe the crazy things Jesus says? Uh, he's way better than my normal rabbi. Others are like, you know, 
I never finished high school, but when he talks about the Torah, it makes sense. Others are like, you know, he's not like the Pharisees. They're just in it for the money, but Jesus actually cares. And then still others are saying, you know, I can't wait until he gives the word and we all grab our swords and we storm Jerusalem and take the capital back because that's what his kingdom is about. So all kinds of motives. And now in verse 13, he picks his team, uh, the ones that he wants, it says, which inspires a lot of jealousy. Um, People are asking, why these guys? What makes them so special? And quickly, we've got Peter. He's the drama king, one of the most up-and-down emotional guys you'll ever meet, uh, sarcastically called The Rock. You have James and John, uh, the sons of thunder, uh, who always got their way in high school, and now they still want to be in charge. You have Andrew, Peter's quiet brother. He spends all his time putting out fires. Got several people no one knows anything about. Philip, Bartholomew, James number two, Thaddeus. Who are these guys? No one really knows. Um, Like Mark, help us out here a little bit. Um, Levi Matthew, formerly a tax collector, so also a snitch for the Romans. Thomas is a twin, that's about all we know, so we have half a set here. Mark doesn't say if we have the better half. We've got Simon, the Canaanian, also a zealot, so he's a nationalist, an anarchist, revolutionary. He's probably plotting in his bunker with maps on the walls. Most people don't want anything to do with him. And then finally, Judas Iscariot, rumored to be an assassin. No one really knows. He's streetwise, though, and he's kind of a thug who'd probably kill you if you crossed him. He's a question mark to everyone but Jesus. But let's say you made the cut. You're traveling with Jesus for reasons of your own. Take your pick. But you don't know what's coming. All right, chapter 3, verse 20, the family arrives, and they are ticked. Uh, Jesus goes home, and right away, things go badly. Hey, Jesus, your mom is looking for you. A lot of us would like to think that our family would be the first to see that we have something special. There's something special about us, and that's not what's going on here. Mary says, Jesus is insane. His brothers are like, yeah, he definitely is. Got to, got to rein them in. And then the scribes roll in, though, and they cut in line because they're not used to standing around. Verse 22, the scribes uh, arrive from Ju- Jerusalem, and they, they interrupt. And uh, as you probably know, the scribes are the morality experts. They're the, the tenured pro- uh, professors. They write textbooks for fun. And they've created a system of theology, quote, quote-unquote, that allows them to discredit anyone who disagrees with them, like Jesus. How does it work? Well, like this, verse 22, they show up, hey, Jesus, you're possessed by the devil. And you watch in horror, in first century Palestine, this is absolutely the worst label you can get, the worst label anyone can give you. And no one ever pushes back on the morality police because they're the ones who call the shots. They guilt people right and left. They use their labels. There's not a whole lot you can do. Jesus is being censored. He is being canceled. But as you watch, verse 23, he pushes back. He easily refutes them. And then, 
gets better. Verse 28, he says, they're going to hell. Keep going down this road, calling God evil. I'm paraphrasing, he says, there's no way back. If you say the spirit of God is, is unclean and evil, you're calling God the devil, you can't recover from that unless you turn around. It's shocking. You are shocked. Everyone watching is shocked. Instead of being canceled, Jesus cancels the scribes, the thought police. And he says, you won't get away with it. So as you stand there, you think, well, I guess the scribes aren't part of the inner circle. And I'm pretty okay with that. But then, verse 31, his family catches up. And when people say, hey, Mary, you must be so proud of that son of yours, she gets real quiet. They don't think Jesus' preaching is just stupid. Mary and his siblings, they, they think he's had a psychotic break. They think he's crazy. They want him back home doing honest work, and they're standing outside waiting for Jesus to come out. You know your mom is mad when she won't even talk to you in front of your friends, right? And you expect Jesus to, to go have a quiet word with Mary, what does he do instead? Verse 33, he blows up the Jewish concept of family. Family over everything at all costs, together, forever. It's been like a bunker for literally thousands of years protecting Jews as they've been persecuted, invaded, deported. It has kept them intact. Now, Jesus says the most important family you can be part of is mine, and hey, membership is open to those who do the will of God, verse 35. Well, standing there watching, waves of shame and pity wash over you for Mary and the kids, because this is unheard of. And you wonder, what have I gotten myself into? How can anyone end up acceptable to Jesus? The morality police don't make it. His own family doesn't make it. Will he turn on me next? And what happens after that doesn't make it better. Chapter 4, verse 1, he starts preaching again, which seems to be his favorite thing. His parables create curiosity for sure, but also confusion. That sounds better. Confusion and even anger. As he preaches, he's constantly saying, listen, hear, pay attention as if only a few people will get what he's actually saying. He talks about four types of soils. It seems like he's really talking about types of people. He talks about a lamp, a light that can't be hidden, seed that grows spontaneously, a tiny garden plant that takes over the entire garden. And when he sits down to explain, what he says makes you nervous. He says, the variables in my stories are not the sower seed or the lamp or the mustard seed. My message, my words are, are not in doubt. He's incredibly confident. He says, my kingdom won't be stopped. It'll overshadow the celebrity pastors, the thought police, Oprah, the progressives trying to rewrite the Bible, the atheists, everything, everyone. Don't worry about my kingdom, he says. It's invincible, and it's coming. It'll be fine. 
Instead, worry about yourself. How is your heart, your soul? And you want to say, hey, Jesus, I like you. I'm, I'm here, part of your entourage. I think you're amazing. I'm a huge fan. Isn't that enough? But he's saying it's not. If you don't have this one special thing, he says, even what you have now, the good times on the road, the camaraderie, these exciting ideas, that will be taken away. It's all about the kind of soil my words find in your heart. And you think, the scribes are out, his own family is out, I've got all kinds of questions about my heart, what I find in here scares me sometimes. What if I'm not good enough for Jesus? What if I don't have what it takes? Then it all comes to a head. Verse 35, still chapter 4. As the sun is setting, Jesus says, hey, let's sail across uh, the Sea of Galilee. And it doesn't seem like a real great time to take a trip in a boat, but you all agree. And you climb in, and at first there are other boats around you, and then they all disappear. And then the sky turns black, and the, the stars and the moon are blotted out, and you've never seen a storm this bad. It comes out of nowhere. There are towering 40-foot waves. Each one is big enough to crush your, your little boats and, and drown you all. And seasoned fishermen like Peter and James and John are freaking out. And since you know nothing about boats and fishing, you're definitely freaking out. So panicking, you shake Jesus awake. Verse 38, you say, don't you care? Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? Because he always knows what to do. He's, he's the magnet that holds your group together. And so you wake him up, and instead of saying, all right, let's pray together, or pull out the buckets and the life preservers, Jesus says, verse 39, peace, be still. And he's not talking to you. He's talking to the storm, the wind and the waves, like Yahweh in the Old Testament, the stories that you know, and the wind and the waves, they obey. And then as the stars come back out and the waves die, he says, verse 40, why are you so scared? But actually, it's worse than that. He says, where's your faith? Actually, to be precise, he says, how do you still not have any? Meaning that you should have had some faith by now. After everything you've seen, everything I've said, you still don't trust me. And the storm that disappeared from the sea appears inside you. You're, you're terrified. No one should be this powerful. And you feel horrible because now you know what you needed all this time, what you're missing, faith. You don't know what to do. Faith, this total trust that Jesus wants from you, you just don't have it. Where does it come from? Where do you find this kind of absolute trust? In chapter 5, you cross the sea on the far side when you finally arrive. You watch Jesus rescue a man who really, truly 
is possessed by the devil, the real thing, someone no one else could help, no one else cared about, and you watch this man, formerly full of sin and darkness, start following Jesus, and he has faith. He has faith, and he receives a, a job from Jesus. He becomes an apostle, a missionary, and you're still struggling. Then, back in Galilee, back closer to home, uh, chapter 5, verse 21, uh, on the streets, a very important person approaches. Right away, you know, here's a guy who will never get in. Here's someone who will never be on the inner circle. Uh, Jairus or Jairus, uh, whatever his name is, he's on the outside. And this kind of person, a, a worship leader, a religious expert, he's cool with the scribes. He's not part of Jesus' kingdom. He already has everything. And it makes you feel a little better. But then, to your surprise, Jairus gets on his face and he, he pleads with Jesus to heal his daughter. Verse 23, he has conviction. And then what does Jesus do? He says yes. As you start to walk toward Jairus' house, uh, you're interrupted. Verse 25, Jesus stops. He calls out to this woman in the crowd uh, who, who reached out and touched his cloak and he talks with her, he counsels her, and he calls her his daughter. He takes his time, he has a conversation, he says her faith made her well. And then a messenger arrives, verse 35, with, with bad news for Jairus. And you think, well, that's too bad for him, I guess. Uh, apparently he didn't get chosen after all. As his daughter has died, Jesus delaying on the road. But Jairus is still standing there. He didn't leave as the seconds of his daughter's life ticked away. As Jesus talked and delayed, wasting all those precious minutes, Jairus waited, and it was all for nothing. Something falls into place for you. Jairus trusts Jesus even though his daughter is dead, even though his reputation is shot, even though it's too late. He trusts Jesus beyond logic, beyond reason. His faith makes no sense. It's insane. And you realize there's a reason you can never summon up this kind of crazy, irrational, blind belief. Jesus can't take care of everyone. Maybe not even you. Jairus is a fool. Then Jesus has to go make things worse. Verse 36. Do not fear, only believe, he says. And now it sounds like a cliche. It's too late. You want to say, Jesus, let it go. Faith can't solve everything. As he 
as he reaches Jairus' house, even the hired, the hired mourners, the grief counselors, lose their cool and they laugh at him. You wish you weren't there. And then, verse 41, Jesus takes the hand of a dead girl. Little girl, I say to you, arise. Or more accurately, uh, for us, wake up, sweetheart, he says. He, he pulls her up through death. Like death is a bad dream. Back to life. He resurrects her. You realize uh, with, with shame that you are the fool. That faith is real, not a cliche. Because someone who is stronger than storms stronger than evil and sin, stronger than death itself, who never hurries, who always arrives exactly on time, is someone you can trust absolutely. All right, now we, we step out of the story as Jesus heads back to Nazareth for more rejection. Um, he'll discover that in his own hometown where people think they know him the best, they actually know him the least of all. But now we ask, how do we enter Jesus' kingdom? How do I reach his inner circle as a disciple and stay there when my faith is so weak? It's so up and down. And Mark has a lot more to say. His story is far from over, but the answer is clear. No matter how confused you are by Jesus, even if you have no clue what he's doing in your life, don't walk away like a crowd after the show is over streaming for the exits. Instead, get close. Don't let them out of your sight because the thing you need, faith, total trust in a king, is a thing only he can create. The thing you need is a thing only he can give you. What if that anger in, you, in your hearts that you feel when things spiral out of control, Jesus, don't you care? Where are you? Aren't you listening? Are you asleep? What if that anger is meant to pull you close to him? What if that fear of being labeled, of being rejected or canceled, that, that desperate desire to be healthy, to be well, to be free of your, of your sickness, of your disease, of your fatigue, what if that feeling of being totally out of control of your own life, of having your, your mind cluttered, uh, your emotions dark, what if all of that is meant to push you toward Jesus 
rather than to pull you away. That struggle to believe, to trust, is meant to bring you close. When you look at Jesus, he creates faith in your heart. Someone who is stronger than storms, stronger than sin and the devil, stronger than death itself, who never hurries, but always arrives exactly on time, is someone you can trust absolutely. When you, when you look at him, when you stay close to him, he'll cause you to know that's true. So, stay close to Jesus. Don't walk away. That's the message of this passage. That's the message of Mark and the gospel. Jesus is not just the king you know. He's your creator, your brother, and your friend. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thanks for these uh, snapshots of the life of Christ, the uh, Messiah, the King, who came as a friend and a servant to heal, to preach, to tell these stories, the parables that would inspire our curiosity and perhaps our confusion, perhaps even anger, perhaps even fear, uh, but who came in the end to lead us back to himself, to see that he is someone altogether deserving of our trust, our total trust, and our absolute faith. Uh, help us to see him more clearly and to lean on him as we should. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.